Welcome to the Live Big Podcast featuring Dr. Derek Greer, where we teach principles from God's Word that will empower you to live big. For more information, visit DerekGreer.com. Here's Dr. Greer. Hallelujah. We are continuing our series on the life of Moses that we began uh, two weeks ago. And uh, we're going to get back to our discipleship series probably in a few months in in the fall. But we're going to take a little side journey and... uh, we're going to learn a whole lot about probably the, the second chief character in all of the Bible, and uh, that is, is Moses. So open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3 and verse 1, and some of this is going to be a repeat, but we'll eventually get to where we're going. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law who just so happened to be the priest of Midian. And you might think you're lost, but God knows exactly where you are and and who to connect you to. And, you know, this former prince, this former general is, you know, he's, we talked about this, he's been reduced. He's not, you know, uh, in a lot of people's mind, half the guy he, he used to be. And this point in his life, he's simply leading a flock of sheep on the backside of the desert. But here's something I know. Some lessons cannot be learned in the comfortable palaces of Egypt. Some lessons can't be learned, though you're tutored by the greatest minds in the world at that time. You know that he had the greatest instructors. Some lessons in life can only be learned on the backside of the desert. And I wish this wasn't so, but some of the most important lessons we learn in, in life, we end up learning them the hard way. And this was the case with our beloved brother Moses. Well, he's in the desert, and he came to Horeb, which was the mountain of God. And this tells you a whole lot, because if you feel like you're in a dry place, if you feel like you're in the desert, don't worry, because you might be closer to the mountaintop than you ever imagined. So he's in this dry place, but he didn't really understand. He was really right next to God's mountain. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of the bush. So he looked, and and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but he noticed the bush was not consumed. Then then Moses said, I will now turn aside and, and see this really strange sight, this fire that keeps burning, though there's not a lot of trees, a lot of fuel in the desert. He said, you know, I wonder why this bush has not burned out yet. And we covered this last time. Moses' life may not have been the way he planned. Moses' life certainly didn't go the way uh, the the daughter of Pharaoh expected. It didn't go the way his mother and father expected. It it certainly didn't go the way he expected. But, But what's important here was that even though his life didn't turn out the way he wanted, he didn't check out. And sometimes when we don't get our way and things don't go, we just check out of life and we just go into, you know, uh, uh, I feel sorry for myself. I'm sad about this. I'm mad about this. We just kind of go into this malaise and the, and the rest. But we see that this wasn't the case for Moses. He was still very much alive, very much attentive. And we see in this verse, he was still curious. Albert Einstein says, he said, I have no special talents. That's, that's a remarkable statement coming from one of the greatest, greatest scientists that that has lived. He says, really, the only thing special about me is I am passionately curious. And we see that about Moses. 
He, he, he was, you know, just messing around with sheep, but he's still curious. He still wanted to learn. He still wanted to see. He still wanted to understand. He didn't just give up, go home, and watch TV. He was still engaged. So when he saw, saw this site, the Bible, you know, it can't cover everything. So what it covers is important because the book would just be too long. And it said that Moses saw this, and we see from the very beginning, Moses was a man of action. The Bible said he saw this, and he turned aside to take a closer look. And, you know, this, this says a lot about God because almost everybody God's called, actually everybody God called in the Bible was busy. Peter and them were, were out there fishing, and Jesus said, come follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. You know, everybody, remember, Gideon was in the threshing floor. Everyone God ever called was busy doing something. And, you know, the world has enough wishers. God's looking for some doers. So Moses turned aside, and God's like, that's the guy I'm looking for. And then God called him from the midst of the bush, and he said, Moses, Moses, 40 years, the backside of the desert. I mean, no one said his name. And if you said his name, it was, you know, he, it was that great failure, that man that, that tried to begin that revolt against the Pharaoh. No one, even, you know, no one, no one even thought about him. But again, when it did, it, it was a bad thing. Forty years in the desert, but God did not forget his name. I don't care how long it's been in your life. If God said it, he'll perform it, and he hasn't forgotten your name or his promise. Isaiah 49, in verse 14, the prophet says this. He said, but Zion, now Zion refers to the people of God. It refers to God's spiritual kingdom. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. Ever felt a little bit forsaken? My Lord has forgotten me. Ever feel just a little bit forgotten? And God heard what they were thinking and what they were saying. And watch his response. God said, can a woman forget her nursing child? I mean, what happens, you know, when, when, a, when a mother has a baby, she begins to produce milk. And if that nursing child stops eating or drinking, her breasts become engorged, which is a very, very painful situation. Even if the mother's a mean mother, a bad mother, her breasts remind her she has a baby to tend to. So it says, can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? And the comparison here is God is saying, you know, I'm more tender, more caring, more compassionate, and more unchangeable than even mama's love. You know, I'm both Mother's Day and Father's Day wrapped up in one and had Christmas, and you still haven't gotten close. And then God speaks, you know, in his bodacious way. And you, you, I just love the way God is. I just love him. And uh, he said, surely mama will forget. Surely daddy will forget. Yet I will not forget you. And then he said this. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. And what he's saying is, I have a tattoo on the palm of my hand with your name on it, meaning God has my picture in his wallet. 
Every detail of my life, he is paying attention to all the time. And, and, you know, even if the word, you know, he gets busy running the universe, all he got to do is take a glimpse at that hand. He said, oh, my boy, Derek and Dumfries. You know, my, my, my sister, such, such that, my, my daughter, that, and, and he says his, your name is inscribed on the palm of my hands. And then it goes on, your walls. Now, this is blind to us because Isaiah was speaking to the, the people of God who had just come out of captivity. And their walls had been turned to rubble. The Babylonians had conquered them and knocked down their walls. And what he says is your walls, the rubble in your life, the situation in your life, are continually performing. God thinks about your situation more than you do. So sometimes what I say to myself, you know what, why should I worry? He's already, you know, thinking about it. Why, why? Maybe I should let it go and let him handle it. And work it out. Back to Exodus 3 and 1. And then Moses responded to the Lord that was speaking to him through this angel in this burning bush. And he said, here I am. Here's the question. Why would any of us run from a God who loved us like God does? That again would tattoo our name on his hand. Write all our days, the Bible says, in a book. I mean, he's so obsessive about us, he almost gets weird. Because the Bible says all the hair, uh-oh. <laughs> all the hairs on our head are numbered. He pays attention to every detail. I love my wife. I appreciate my wife. I celebrate my wife. But I have never... Watched her sleep, it started one, two, three, four, five. God's affection for us is amazing and it almost borderlines bizarre the way God loves you and I. Skip to verse 7. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people. Now, this is the first time the phrase, my people, is used in all the Bible. Before this time, God had individuals. He had Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He had Noah. He had, you know, Shem and, and uh, you know, no, Enoch and, and, and others. But this is the first time he reveals to us that he has a people. But then when he starts speaking about his people, meaning God is attentive to a multitude as he is to a single, he said, I have surely seeing the oppression of my people. They're not just messing with a people, they're messing with my people who are in, a, in, in, in Egypt. Now, it's a dangerous thing to mistreat people who trust God. God's people are a little bit like my wife, an odd combination of really sweet and don't mess with me all at the same time. A little sunshine mixed with hurricane. And that's who we are as the bride of Jesus Christ. Beat me down, but don't touch my wife. 1 Peter 2 and 10. Now, you might think I'm just talking about the Israelites. You might think I'm talking just about the natural uh, lineage of, of Jesus. But watch what 1 Peter says. We who were once not a people, are now the people 
of God. You and I are as much God's people and as much beloved as by God as any of the people that have ever existed. Exodus 3 and 7. And God's speaking to Moses. He says, surely I have seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. So the first thing we see is God sees. And I have heard. So he sees and, and he hears their cry because of their taskmasters. For I know. So he sees, he hears. And he says, for I know their sorrows. Jesus said it this way. You know, you don't have to... to talk to God in these fancy, long, big words. God knows what you need even before you ask. God knows the pain. He knows the hurt. He knows the challenges of his people. Like I said, every head on our hair is numbered, which is easy for me at this juncture. But God sees, knows, and hears it all. In a moment, that's going to make more sense. Verse 9. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me. The language there is interesting. They had been in bondage for 400 years, but only at this point does God hear. How many of you had a problem for a long time? And you wonder why it doesn't seem like God, God ever really heard you yet. But the language here kind of hints at that it was only after everything else failed that they finally cried out to God. I mean, at first they looked to their, perhaps their politicians, they, they looked to their philosophers, or maybe they even trusted the kindness of the Egyptians. But finally, at some point, they got sick and tired of being sick and tired. You see, like many of us, Prayer was their last resort instead of their first line of defense. But thank God, God still hears the sinner's prayer. So when you can't stand, kneel, and God will hear. So it says, and behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me. What's interesting is that if it, was, it wasn't what we say is, Lord, if you knew what I was feeling and facing, and you really loved me, you come and fix it. God saw their oppression, but it wasn't until he both saw his oppression and heard their cry. Two boys. And when they were children, you know, we put them to bed and they cry. It's normal for babies to cry. In fact, sometimes when they cry, they'd, frankly, they'd annoy me a little bit. I'm like, would you just hush up? I'm not coming in to, to look at you or to do anything. You know, just go to sleep. But one day, my oldest son had a whooping cough. And that night when he woke up, I heard a cry. This wasn't that regular cry. This wasn't that perfunctory, halfway spoiled cry. This was, Daddy, something's wrong. Daddy, I need you now. And before Mama and Daddy could even think about it, we were down the hall in his room. Many of us pray our perfunctory prayers our formulaic prayers. And there's a place for that, and, and it's good to keep God on your mind, and, and it's good to offer petition, but there comes a time where you got to cry out from the bottom of your heart and hear 
we could become so callous by pain and, and we, we could become so used to it that crazy becomes normal and we just kind of accept it and, and we know it's just part of life and part of living. But finally, the people of God got tired of it and said, God, I need your help. I can't take it no more. And when they cried out to God, God heard their prayer. You see, you may think you're waiting on God. Reality is God might be waiting on you, waiting for you to finally get serious, to talk to God from the heart. I've said this before, but one of my challenges is since, you know, God's my business, I could sometimes just kind of talk to him. I don't know how to describe it, but I mean, it's, it's genuine, but it's perfunctory. I, forgive me for keep throwing that word out there. But, you know, Lord, fix this. Lord, help that. And sometimes, you know, I, I wear my bishop hat a good part of the day, and then I start talking to God like, you know, I'm somehow his pastor, and he can't really hear all that I'm thinking like it's going to impact his faith. And, uh, and, and I had this season in my life, you know, now I cry like a water faucet, but I had this season in my life, I went about, I don't know, it was three to five years, I couldn't cry. I was dealing with so much pressure, so much strain, so much antagonism, so many problems, so many issues. No matter what, the only time I cried maybe was in the presence of the Lord, but, but I, I couldn't cry. And the Lord, the, the way he, and this went on for a long time, the way he finally dealt with this, and by the way, the way Hebrews beat children, I'm not recommending this to anybody. <laughs> Part of the way they were taught to spank a child was you spanked him until he cried. And if he didn't submit and yield... If there weren't tears of washing, there wasn't repentance. So God seems a little bit more Hebrew than I like at times. And the Lord was like, Derek, tell me what you're feeling. Tell me what you're thinking. And, I, you know, I hear it for days, and I just ignore it. I say, well, I believe you will supply all my needs. I said, I, he's like, I don't want to hear your faith right now. Tell me what you're feeling, what you're thinking. And I'd be like, well, God, you'll make a way. Derek, we have a relationship. And if we really have a relationship, intimacy is me, you know, intimacy. And, and where is you allowing me to see into you? So after him nagging me a little bit, that's what it felt like. Finally said, okay, Lord, I feel like this. And I tell him, and I was impressed. Okay, I said some things. And then the next day, he'd ask me the same question. Tell me what you're feeling. Tell me. I said, I just told you yesterday. I, I don't want to do that again. I'm trying not to feel those things, God. I'm trying not to think those things, God. He's like, tell me again. So I tell him again. I mean, I don't remember how many times this happened. It had to be about five times. I don't know. But finally, by the fifth time, I was telling him what was going on, and tears started to flow. And finally, I wasn't just talking out my head. I began to talk out my heart. And, and, and it's, no, don't just go cry in the mirror thinking because tears came, God's going to do something. 
But I'm saying when those tears are genuine, the Bible says he bottles up our tears. I mean, he, he pays attention to how salty they are, how, how voluminous they are. And as I began to tell him, I began to cry. And for the first time, I started feeling free again. I started feeling human again. I stopped feeling like a guy that just got to be strong. I felt like an individual who could be weak. And amazingly, when I got past that, that prayer, that's when God began to move on my situation and my circumstances. But he had to have a heart to heart. The Bible said, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with your whole heart. And the challenge is, I'll give him a good quarter. I might even give him a good half, but I'm too busy sometimes to have that wholehearted conversation. So sometimes the Egyptians got to beat you bad. That you pull aside and away from everything. And say, Lord, I'm going to cry out to you with my whole heart. God, I need you now. And when they cried out, God heard. And here was the answer. Moses had already been there, but it wasn't until they cried out that God sent him. The answer's already there. But until you cry out from your heart to God, you may not experience he said, come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So the faith of one man was about to impact a, a million. You know, I'm a little bit, I'm, I'm taking too long here, but I'm going to do a little bit of skipping. But, you know, you may not be able to do everything, but you can do something. And one of us is still better than, than none of us. But Moses said to God, he's about to ask one of life's big questions. He said, God, who am I? Now, today we go to the psychologist. We go to the politicians. We, we go to our, our public school teachers. Dear God, help us. We go to our pop stars. We go all these places looking for our identities. But forgive me, I know I'm a little bit old-fashioned, but I still believe that the Creator understands His creation best. You have been listening to the Live Big Podcast with Dr. Derek Greer. For more information, visit DerekGreer.com or follow Dr. Greer on social media.